What to do, fam? Welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Today we have on Jennifer Wallace. Uh, because of my interest in trauma, all things trauma, there's going to be a lot of guests that are going to come on the podcast who are experts in this. And Jennifer is one of them. She's a holistic life coach and a podcaster. And she has walked the journey of healing incredible trauma and also healing from an incredible cancer diagnosis. And she's going to share her journey of that in this podcast. And there is something inarticulably magical about someone sharing a story, their story of walking through the lowest lows and of how they walked out of hell. And she has one of those stories. So if you want to hear and feel the magic and the transformation that can come from alchemizing the wounds that have put you into hell, this is one of those stories. And as always, uh, if you want to support the podcast, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. First, if you're not, I recommend that you get on my newsletter email list, uh, Feasting Fridays. You can go check that out at erigazzi.com. And also uh, the journaling course is the primary way that I pay for all the things uh, because I don't like to put ads on this podcast. Um, I guess this is an ad, but you know what I mean. I don't want to sell you socks or stamps or anything like that. Um, hundreds of people have bought the course and we haven't had a single person ask for a refund so far. So it feels like it's helping and it feels like it's worth it. So if you want to make journaling a habit, you want to get a little window into my weirdness about how I journal, check out that course. And um, I'm going to be having a digital journal uh, coming out pretty soon called the Dharma Journal that I'm really excited about. I've been working on it for about six months and it is now the digital journal that I use every day. And I think you guys are going to absolutely love it. So when you guys see that, I invite you to check it out. And also, shout out to my podcast producer, Graham. Uh, we're going to slowly be moving towards video and starting a YouTube channel. And so if you like to watch podcasts, that option is going to be available in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much for your attention and your time in this world where there's 100,000 new things every day. It really means a lot to me that you take the time to bring your godlike attention and awareness to this podcast and to these people's stories. So thank you. I love you and enjoy. Jennifer, thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, you recommended to me by Elizabeth and she said that, um, you know, if I wanted to talk about trauma and I wanted to talk about someone's personal alchemy with trauma that I had to talk to you and that she first connected with you. Um, I believe you two did ayahuasca together uh, at, down at Sultara. We did. We did. I'm incredibly grateful that Elizabeth has connected us. I'm genuinely excited to sit with you today and to explore trauma and that you're holding a safe space for me to share my story. Um, Elizabeth and I, I actually trained 
with Elizabeth under, uh, at her Pilates studio. So I'm certified in Pilates under Elizabeth. And when she left her Pilates studio, I went with her and we trained at another studio together where really our friendship kind of formed. And we've done some Z health training together. And she is my neuro coach too. Um, and so I do work with her. She's my movement coach and she's a collaborator with me on the podcast. And we have done ayahuasca together. <laughs> She's my soul sister. I love it. And that feeds into uh, my favorite way to open up these podcasts, which is, let's say that I met you and you just finished doing something that puts you into flow. And I come up to you and I ask you, who are you and what do you do? What would your answer be? At my highest self... In my deepest being and my core, I am a guide, a teacher, and facilitator in the healing arts. The foundation of my purpose is rooted in communication, and through sharing my story and the stories of others, I believe in healing and creating community. And your name? is Jennifer. My name is Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> and how would your best friend describe you and what you do? My friends would describe me as loyal. My friends would describe me as loyal, kind, and nurturing. And what would they say that you do in the world? They would say that I'm a giver. I'm a healer. Mm. How would your partner describe you and what you do in the world? That would be my dog, and she would describe me as the (laughs) world and universe. I am everything. (laughs) I am a mother. I am the queen. I am the. I am. I am all of it. I am. I embody everything for my my little partner here. If you can, uh, how would your most recent partner describe you when things were good, like like before things turned into whatever things turn into that make partners ex partners? How how would they have described who you are and what you do? Gosh, wow! You know, Eric, that's crazy. That is a good question because that person is so far gone. They yeah. would have seen me as a dysregulated, off the chain, pendulum swinging, emotional person, unrooted, ungrounded, looking, someone looking for something, not being able to find it, un- unsatisfied. Wow. I, I appreciate the honesty. Um, how many years ago would that of story have been true? 2014. 2014. Um, how would your father describe you and what you do? He would describe me as hardworking, also loyal, and stubbornly independent. <laughs> and your mother? <laughs> yes, definitely stubbornly independent. I've always been independent. I'm an only child, but I'm her child. So I'm also incredibly gifted with arts and crafts and um, empathetic. And how would the thing that we clumsily use the word God or universe or spirit for, how would that thing describe your ego and what it is that your ego is doing here in this lifetime? I think that in this moment of my life, that divine 
source and infinite intelligence is expressing itself through me at the brightest it has ever expressed with the easiest flow. And I would think that source is proud of me and what I am doing and how I am serving. That's beautiful. What do you recall as your first memory? (laughs) I remember I have this very, very old friend. We went to preschool together, Vicky. And, um, we, we would not eat our vegetables and we would not be allowed to go outside and play. Interesting. I have memories that I can't tell our memories or dreams. Yep. Of my, I know what you mean. Yeah. Of my really early childhood that I could potentially say I could go back further than that, which is about three, what I was just telling you. But I've, I don't know if it's real or not. And what's interesting is my intuition is the fact that that is the caveat that comes up right away is very likely you admitting that you know that they're not explicit memories and that they're either dream or imagination memories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or just maybe living in there as a, as a past experience from maybe a, a different life. Yeah, and... One of the things that I've learned clearly um, interacting with things like ayahuasca is I don't know what the fuck is going on. And <laughs> Newton didn't get it right. And Einstein didn't get it right. They got a piece of it right, but it's not a period. It's a comma. But that's a different conversation. <laughs> what do you recall being the first story that really captured you? And that could be either from a book or a movie, a, a bedtime story that mom or dad told. Children tend to find something and they want it to be reread or retold or rewatched over and over again. And I'm curious which one that was for you. I think my deep programming as a Disney watching child was the story of the girl who needed to be saved. And so my traumas and attachment styles fed into that story. And so that story, as we know, is not real. Yeah, one of the things that's coming up for me right now is perfect story that you would tell to someone um, to basically have them not take responsibility for learning how to regulate their own nervous system would perpetuate them putting themselves into traumatic situations mm-hmm. and then sharing their trauma to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's malicious. I think it's incompetence and naivety and um, a function of the people who were making the stories at the time. But that's my own opinion. Yeah, it's interesting. It's um, That's a whole other thing we could probably <laughs> tangent wormhole on is Disney. But um, yeah, I think getting back to the traumas and stuff and those trauma bonds get so easily formed. And I think that has part to do with the unresolved stress and the the trauma cycle not being fully complete you know absolutely on to the other to the others in your relationships i would love for you to kind of take the reins here and guide me through the arc of your life um that began in childhood 
and then kind of um, culminated in that dysregulation person that would have uh, been the antagonist of her partner and then kind of brings you to the present moment. And you can take as short or as long as you like, but I would just love to get a sense of that arc and then I'll pull on threads or just ask questions in places that feel like they want to blossom. Okay. Um, I was born in Virginia Beach, Virginia to a um, an incredibly loving, hardworking mom. My biological father left before I turned one. And so <clears throat> I will often say through my life, I don't know him. Um, so when I was five, my mom married my dad. And so for those first five years, I had the role of my grandfather was really strong presence in my life and we're very close. And then when my mom married my dad, she married a really awesome guy. I mean, she really, we, it was really like a flip switch. My biological father was not present, not in the time of maybe even ever wanting a child. And so it just wasn't for him. I don't think it was a very healthy relationship. And so he bolted really to never be seen again. Um, and then when I was eight, my, my dad adopted me. So I took his last name and I really could not want for anything growing up. I had a very happy childhood until I can remember being about maybe like seven or eight are my first sort of feelings and memories of like, uh, I started having some gut issues in my stomach. And it, when I got put onto this medication, I put weight on. And then by the time I was about 10, I was really feeling and identifying with being overweight and kind of struggling with that going through school. And then I began binge eating probably at about 12. And that binging, I think, is in part a learned behavior and in part also manufactured security yeah. and poor interceptive uh, skills. And so I began, and high school was fine. I wasn't popular. I wasn't in popular. I was just sort of like, you know, pretty level there. And I had really nice friends. I've had very long supportive friendships for really my whole life. Um, I'm still friends with the same people. So when I started drinking, that was really, that was, thank God I don't have an addictive personality because when I discovered alcohol, it was like all of my insecurities had this blanket over them now, right? Now I was popular. Now I was funny. Now I wasn't only a hardworking, overworking, but maybe I was pretty or I felt like I was part of something. Like alcohol just kind of bridged my gaps in my social life, I guess you could say. What age? Um, I started drinking at probably 18 or 19. And by the time, I mean, I drank so heavily to mask my real emotions to run away. I mean, I did it to hide and to come out. Do you know what I mean? Wow. That's such a beautiful way to put it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I was really lost in relationships. I was seeking out my first, well, my first boyfriend was bad. My second one was good. My third and fourth one, I think were, were really good too. And then the others that were kind of coming in and out, you know, I wasn't really showing up as my full self because I was hiding in alcohol. And when you don't show up as your full self, you I mean, you just never, I was, I was under this guise of like, <sighs> never really feeling enough and really trying always so hard and having an attachment style of like quick, hard, fast love, right? Like commitment all the way. Oh my gosh, I love you. Yes, we're doing this. And then boom, gone. Wow. You know what I'm saying? It was really just, it, it's really... I, I guess I kind of want to say destructive is kind of the word. Um, so my relationships weren't really very healthy, I guess. Um, and then in 2014, when I was 37, that's the first time I ever lived with a boyfriend. Like I went that long, never living with anyone and not really ever committing for more than like a couple of years. And that was not a healthy relationship. When I look back now, I can see that what I needed from him was very physical. I just needed the presence of a body next to me who wanted to maybe seem like he was supporting me. But thankfully, I rehomed him because I rehomed him in July, July 4th weekend of 2014. And I haven't I, heard that term before. What's rehome? <laughs> well, we were living together and he needed to leave, but he, I hadn't told him that yet. And so I found him a home. And then I went home to tell him, you can't stay here anymore. And he said, but where am I going to go? And I said, you're going over there. I found you another home. <laughs> wow. Um, it was just incredibly toxic and it, we tried to, I tr I've always tried to remain friends, but anyways, um, I got diagnosed with stage three, her two positive breast cancer in October that year. And had I not, had I continued that relationship of the man I was living with, I would have not, not had near the success I did with, um, with that breast cancer treatment. I ended up healing in the top 40th percentile, I didn't even finish out the protocol that they had set forth for me for, um, I found a nine centimeter tumor in my right breast. Wow. And so, yeah, that was 2014 and gosh, I didn't even, I totally left out a, a big chunk of my life. Um, in 2005, when I was 28, I moved to London and I, uh, I finished my degree over there. I have a fine arts degree in, um, in photography and I left London in 2009 and I took a job that was supposed to move me to Singapore and I went to Turkey for a short bit. And, um, I, I had just watched that film taken. I can't think of that actor's name right now, but you know who I'm talking about. He goes after everybody. Liam Neeson. Yes, Liam Neeson. He's so awesome. Um, I had just watched that movie, and I think the next weekend, uh, a person that I thought that I was making friends with delivered me to a home where I was held captive for seven hours and fought 
fought the landscape of my body, you know, to keep it safe. I ended up stabbing the captor and um, he called the guy who delivered me there to take me back out of the house. And I ended up going back. I I knew the mayor of the town. So I went to the police station that night um, after I got dropped back off at my apartment and uh, went back through the house with the, with the police officers, with the chief of police and forensics and everybody with like the lights and the, the booties and really saw the house from the lens that it was where there were bunk beds and rooms with different locks on them. And it was a really a dark place. So I think with the help of divine intervention and just having good street skills and a really strong desire to survive and know what love is really at the core, um, did I get out and survive that situation? And then cancer. So we just had some technical difficulties and we were just talking about how maybe it was a divine timing that we had these issues because you felt like the cancer came before or in the storytelling, the cancer came first and then only after did you talk about this experience that happened almost 10 years before. And what comes up for me is like when I interpret people's dreams, one of the things that I've learned from studying Carl Jung is that the way your psyche jumps between thoughts, it's called associative thinking um, is actually it reveals like how reveals what contents are linked together in your mind and the fact that you brought up having cancer and then the very next thing that you brought up was this traumatic experience that happened 10 years ago that you very likely had to go on a long healing journey to fully heal may have been the root psychosomatic emotional biological wound that created the chronic stress response that left your body open to having cancer potentially and that your psyche is actually revealing that through the way it's associating between these two thoughts mm-hmm. i if you could see me right now i'm just nodding my head for every <laughs> just said yes 100% yes and I think I kept that secret for so long that I had Mm. been in that position I don't know why it's interesting too that people who experience adverse situations will often feel shame when they're not the ones who should carry the shame yeah for so long I kept the abduction in Turkey a secret but of course everyone knew I had cancer So there's quite a few things that come up for me here. One is the research done on expressive writing that's been led by James Pennebaker. One of the primary things that he has found is that if you write four days in a row for 20 minutes in a very honest stream of consciousness type of way about a traumatic experience that's happened to you in the past, for the next following year, you will go to the doctor half as often Uh, Basically, any type of chronic condition you have, the symptoms will alleviate. If you have depression or PTSD, those symptoms will alleviate or will at least reduce. And that the degree to which the healing happens is the degree to which that thing that you are writing about was kept a secret out of shame. That there's something fundamental about withholding your truth because of shame 
that seems to trigger our chronic stress response in the most powerful way, and then a chronically triggered stress response over years or decades will leave your immune system dysfunctional, which will open you up to all sorts of um, conditions that we think are root conditions, but actually might be symptoms of unprocessed trauma or unshared truths. So that's an interesting thing just to let everybody know. Yeah, but also powerful too, to listen to, to hear. What's really interesting is that thing that you talked about when it comes to shame, because this is something that I found in the research on uh, trauma is that and a tremendous amount of people have shame about it, even though they know rationally that it was not their fault. And one of the things that comes up, and I would love to hear if it resonates for you and what you think it might be, is that we all have this idea of the story of who we are and we project that story into the future and even if it's not our fault we don't want our story to become the story of the divorcee or the story of you know i got raped or the story of like i got humiliated on public tv because of x y and z even though like we have we project into the future the story of what we want our life to be? And even if it's not our fault, there's this part of us that doesn't want to carry the burden of this has to be a part of my story now. Yeah. Yep. I completely, yes, that totally resonates with me. And I think it goes back to the idea too, that we subscribe in this culture to a default body, that there's this body out there that we all subscribe to that's deemed as normal. And when you're interesting, yeah. Fit that, whether it's a size thing or sickness or some any sort of diversity or adversity or you know that it creates exhausting barriers that you have to yeah. you know, when you don't fit a mold. And then those to navigate those personal challenges it makes this, it just compounds more stress. And what's really interesting is uh, statistically, the average person has one lactating breast and one testosterone producing testicle. And that person doesn't exist. You know, (laughs) that mathematically, the normal body does not exist in any particularity. And it's just kind of the hilarity of the thing that we are judging ourselves against is a ghost. It totally is. And that, that there's this whole system. When I started um, studying the holistic lifestyle coaching under Paul Check, I learned that there's like 27 different types of stomachs. Like Whoa. nobody's talking about that. I've never heard like, that. Yeah. We don't have the same system. Me and Elizabeth don't have the same internal system as me or any of any of my friends or any, you know, we're all these different human expressions of source. An interesting thing that I would love to hear you elaborate on is when I shared the connection between um, the event that happened in Turkey and you having cancer and you were shaking your head emphatically, I would love to hear what it is that you saw or heard there that made sense and why did you agree? Because I think a lot of people listening might not understand how those two things are connected at all. But I think that because of your your understanding of trauma, 
that um, you'll be able to help the people listening who don't understand to understand? When I was, it, in short, it's hypervigilance, hypoarousal is right. what led to the sickness. And hypervigilance is a mechanic, like is a, is a response system from your central nervous system. And it goes into basically fight, flight, or freeze, right? We've all heard of that. And hypervigilance is that heart beating faster, blood sugar or blood pressure increases, your muscles tense, you're sensitive to light, you're looking around everywhere, you've got to be constantly checking your surroundings, you're ready at any time to fight or flight or to freeze. And when you live in those heightened states of arousal, because those are neurological and physiological um, states of being, right? Because it's happening in your brain and it's happening in your body. And when that happens, it is affecting your digestive system, your immune system, your cardiovascular system, musculoskeletal and reproductive. And all of your system goes into this um, cycle, right? And then there's really no threat, right? Because I've come home from Turkey cognitively. I can tell the front part of my brain, I'm not under any threat. I'm at home in Virginia beach in my parents' house, totally safe. I am out of harm's way. That man is gone. I'm not even in that country any longer, but internally I'm just constantly on edge. And when you live in that state of dysregulation, that is the type of stress that eventually leaves, leads to chronic illness and dis-ease in the body. The metaphor that comes up is, um, and really it's not even a good metaphor, but the thing that we see in animals is that there's the rabbit at rest. And then there's the rabbit when it's running away from a threat. And those are two fundamentally different biological gears. And when the rabbit is resting, that's the gear that the biology has to be into to essentially recover from the damage of entropy. Like if you are a body in time, you accrue stress simply by being. And the intelligence of nature has created our bodies in such a way where we can recover from that very well when we are allowed to be in that gear. You know, if we're going to use a car metaphor, mm -hmm. when you're running from a threat, all of the energy that would be consumed by the body to repair your cells and to regenerate, all that energy is being used to literally not die in this present moment. And it's like all the fuel is being taken away from the recovery functions and it's to the run functions and the tragedy of the cost of having consciousness is that humans seem to be able to get into the way of completing the mechanical biological cycle that all animals do intuitively when they're no longer in the presence of the trauma and mm -hmm. they can downshift back into that recovery stage but humans, and I think the fundamental thing that keeps people from being able to downshift 
is shame and guilt and fear. It's those three emotions. It, and th this is my intuition, and I'm still early in the trauma research game, but um, it's our judgment of ourselves that keep us from allowing our body to feel what it needs to feel to do what it knows how to do, which is to downregulate back into a recovery mode. And that if this goes on for years and then decades, the chances of that organism in our civilization having something like cancer or Alzheimer's or an autoimmune condition is incredibly high. Mm -hmm. And the chances of that organism in this culture being given poison that's called medicine by companies that requ are required in order to stay alive to sell as many of these poisons as possible are given to these people, not in a way that heals the condition, but that numbs their ability to feel fully that there is something dysregulated inside of them. And that seems to be the woe of Western medicine when it comes to treating chronic illness and mental disorders. And the caveat that I want to offer is to call them all poisons is uh, too heavy of a term, but the way that they tend to be used by most practitioners is received by the body over time as poison. I understand 100% what you're saying there, and I don't disagree with you at all in anything that you just said. And I think it's important to, to look at, well, I want to I say a couple things. When I was going to chemo treatment, the first thing that they did for to hook you before you start getting your infusion, which also is just like this lovely word infusion for this absolutely awful situation you're about to get put into. But um, the first part is that they give you um, a Benadryl infusion for like 30 minutes of Benadryl. And I'm not here to tell people what to do and what they should take and what they should not take. But um, that that type of drug, I think that falls into, I think that's benzodiazepams. They right. will be linked to Alzheimer's and dementia later in life. That falls into your Xanaxes and Valiums, all of those. But I think it's important to note with the Benadryl going in with the cancer treatment is that you hear later on that cancer brain. Oh, I've got chemo brain. Oh, I can't remember that. I've got chemo brain. Well, was that from the chemo or was that from Whoa. the 30 minutes of Benadryl that you dosed me with every three weeks? For wow. I, okay. I just got goosebumps. I didn't know that this was a part of the process. And um, this is a side note, but of the psychiatric medications from the research that I've done, the most addictive and the one that causes the most damage are benzos. Yeah. And I'm telling you, you get a cancer diagnosis and I'm, look, I, I took that Xanax too. Trust me. I had major meltdowns when I went into a chemo room for the first time. So I also was only operating at the best I knew how to at that time, but it's like, oh, you have cancer. Here's Xanax. And you need something, but you need to start upregulating your nervous system and getting in touch with your vagus nerve, not not crushing a bunch of Xanax and then, you know, just wow. being all that I Benadryl. Didn't know that all that Benadryl. And so, then you want to talk to me about my cognitive dysfunction because it's real. 
Wow. So the standard operating procedure for cancer in the U.S. is to prescribe them Xanax. Well, I'm saying that as a sort of a, that's what happened for me. I mean, the I anxiety, the anxiety is so real. You know, yeah. when you hear that you've had can when you hear that you've got cancer, most people, I think, go into for a sure. number of different reactions. Have are you familiar with the research on um, terminally ill cancer patients and mushrooms, and that their near death or their end of life anxiety and the effect that having one to three mushroom journeys, even though that's not what they call it. Um, how it affects that. Are you familiar with those studies? Yes. Psilocybin is one of the most beautiful plants. That a woman, been. sister, a woman. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful. And, and to be able to eat people's experiences and anxieties. And, and when you can, you know, getting back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier, like the, the disease, the hypervigilance, I mean, the disassociation that comes with trauma is also so huge. And I think plays a part in that dysregulation. And so, oh yeah, the cancer, all of it, it just feeds all right. It's just so interwoven all of it. And you said that you had a, that you said quite a few things came to mind on the last rant that I went on and then I cut you off again. And so I apologize. Can you remember any oh. of the other points that came up? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can. When you started talking about the statistics, so there's something called ACE scores, um, adverse childhood experiences. Yep. ACE scores will totally affect your health in your lifetime. So to give the audience like a quick background on, because I, I just learned about the ACE studies doing my research on depression last year for the book that I'm a research writer for. And it, it, it was one of those things that I read and I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to learn who this guy is, everything <laughs> that happened, how it, like just, I'm going to have to know all of this because I can feel it's a fundamental thing in the story that I'm trying to tell. But it's essentially <clears throat> the government uh, hired a doctor to create a weight loss clinic and it, and had a bunch of money and was like, figure out why obesity is so insane in our country and why no matter what we do, our diet recommendations, blah, 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 it's not helping. And so he creates this clinic and he basically uh, puts people through this really intense type of fasting where they don't eat at all and he will just give you the supplementations that you need in order not to die, but you eat no food. And everyone that went through his clinic, they would lose, you know, hundreds of pounds. And these were people that were the most obese that you can imagine, like four or 500 pounds. And um, through his protocol, he would get them down to like a really healthy weight. But what he kept seeing was once they got down to a healthy weight, some accident, quote unquote, heavy, quote unquote, would happen in their life and then they would stop coming for a couple of weeks. They would gain all the weight back. And then they would come back demoralized and confused and sad. And he saw this enough times where he finally was like, okay, I'm going to ask them some questions. And he did something that most doctors don't even think about doing. He asked them what happened. So he asked, uh, what happened the day that you stopped coming? You know, because they had to come every day. Um, and 
then he would ask, and what he started to find out is these people would go through some type of environmental trigger. And the main story that he shares that led him to create the ACE study was that there was this woman who reported that once she got down to a really healthy weight, she got hit on for the first time in her adult life. Mm. And the amount of fear that her body felt, she just felt completely overwhelmed in a way that she could not understand. And she left work immediately, drove straight to the store, bought a huge amount of food, and just stayed home for five or six days and just ate as much as she could. Oh my and, yep. and yeah, and this led the doctor, I wish I could remember his name, to start to ask all these patients these questions. And he would see that there were these triggers. And then he would ask them, when was the first time in your life that you felt that feeling? And it would always come back to childhood. And it would come back to like molestation or physical abuse or a parent died or a, or a home burnt down, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And then he, he created what is now called the ACE survey, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Test or survey. And I... And this is why I feel like I have to learn all this so I know exactly every detail because I can't remember it right now. But I think there's 10 questions or 12 questions on there. And with each question that you answer yes to, the chances of you having an addiction, the chances of you uh, like being unemployed or being homeless or having depression or having schizophrenia just go up and up and up with each extra experience that you check yes to. Yeah. And they say, I think parental disconnection or divorce or separation is one of them. Right. And, um, I think one at the time when they really, when they did this study, one in every 67,000 people had at least one ACE score. Right. So every time that increases, like you're talking about, like the increase about for disease, Like if you have four ACE scores and they go on abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction, so it could be a mental illness, incarceration, physical or sexual abuse, like you were saying, um, substance abuse, um, or divorce. If you have four of those, your risk of pulmonary uh, issues goes up by two and a half percent. Cancer is three and a half percent. Suicide is 12 times. And so getting back to being in these Western doctor's offices, what we're not talking about is what happened in your childhood. Absolutely. One of the things that's been coming up for me in the last couple of days, as I feel more into being drawn to trauma, like into understanding trauma is before I kind of got exposed to any spiritual ideas, um, I was a really hardcore materialist, rationalist, skeptic. And like my field of study that I was really interested in was like evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. And then eventually I eat mushrooms. I realize I don't know any fucking thing. And I become <laughs> agnostic and very open. And then I find a lot of cool spiritual ideas. And what I have felt since I've quote unquote started being in spiritual communities is there is a fundamental like handicapped to most people's spiritual understanding because they don't know anything about evolutionary biology and have no respect for the power that is imbued in us through our evolutionary development that we could go learn about from scientists who have done great work and that 
it's like the essence of spiritual bypassing to to essentially have a spiritual idea that is not in accordance with the laws and the truth of your biological being. And that if you want to understand how to heal trauma, it forces you to look at both of these camps and it forces you to integrate both of these camps because it's not only going to be fixed biologically and it's not only going to be fixed by the type of perspective or story that you bring to it. And that trauma forces these two like creatures to have to merge together. And I think that that's only going to benefit um, both people who are atheists slash agnostic and then people who believe that they'll ascend out of their bodies into light beings to merge into five-dimensional reality who fucking don't understand you know, that sleep's important and that if they don't sleep, their chances of schizophrenic outbreaks go up. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Not to. Min- I mean. Yeah. Gosh. The, when you just said something about schizophrenia, I got an image of the gut. Is what came up for me. But you know, when we talk about trauma and the body, and you know what we're seeing now, I think is that we're really getting a better sense of that trauma does live in the body, and that we have to process it somatically. And before. We've, well, from my perspective, it's always been go to a therapist, go have cognitive therapy. And what we're seeing is that does, you can't just have that. That doesn't only work. You have to, it has to all come together and um, to, to bridge that gap and to bring the body completely back together, to put you back into your body. You have to look at, you should look at it as a mind and body healing experience. And the animals, the instincts that live within us, when we have the divine intelligence and an ancient wisdom within us, it just gets so pushed down by the media, the music, the food, the water, the work, right? The, all of the doing that you have to do and you, it's, it's easy to get caught up in this rat race. And I think now we're seeing also some disconnect from the matrix, right? (laughs) We're we're starting to come out. And as we grow us, you and I, and our communities outside of that, you know, we're getting stronger. Tapping out, being able to play with it a little bit. Now that you feel, so I would love to hear your version of the story of um, how you and I'm curious even what language you would use. Is it overcoming cancer? Is it healing from cancer? Is it fighting cancer? I'm, I'm actually sure it's not fighting cancer, but I'm curious um, like what your story arc is of when you got that diagnosis and how, like what journey did you go on to for you heal? And I, I'm curious to know that so that I can then get into like, what are you most excited about looking forward into the future about your work and your life? Okay, sure. This is actually, it's a, the cancer story is a really kind of a good story because um, what I learned, I had HER2 positive breast cancer and HER2 is a protein gene that we carry in our hearts and mine went mutant out of a toxic environment. And that sentence is the portal to my awakening to a new me. Because what I took that as was now I need to dissect and really break down everything that's coming into my body, 
right? This is before I really understood dysregulated nervous system, right? Now I know that that really played a huge factor in it too. Um, And so it really caused me to take a really hard look at my diet, my lifestyle, my friendships, what I was even saying in my mind. What was I doing before I got sick? Because I'm not going to get sick. And the oncologist, because I was pretty hell-bent on that I was not going to go through chemo. So I had a naturopath before I had um, an oncologist and a team of people. And it wasn't until I went to the fifth oncologist that that doctor told me. It was October 2014. I told him I didn't have any insurance. And so just give me a couple of months. In January, I'll get some Obamacare and let me just see how I do. And if I do great, then I'll just carry on doing my thing. And if I'm doing terrible, then I'll I'll subscribe to your treatment, to your protocol. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I think that's really great. And I would love to support you in that, but you'll be dead by January. You don't have that kind of cancer, Jennifer, and you won't make it. So uh, my protocol was to be six rounds of chemo, a double mastectomy, 30 rounds of radiation, and included in the chemo would be 18 rounds of Herceptin because I had HER2 positive, so that's the drug. So the, that would carry me through the entire of 2015. So I s- worked hard with my naturopath. I have an incredible acupuncturist here in Austin and Chinese doctor. Uh, she did the breast meridian lines with me. I went to acupuncture all the time. I immersed myself into Deepak Chopra's soul of healing and really began to visualize the tumor melting away. I held a psilocybin ceremony with myself and the tumor and basically had a come to Jesus moment with it. And like, okay, I recognize you. You are here. You've come to show me something. You're teaching me, but you are not welcome. You cannot stay and you are not taking me with you. And so, and that was a crazy night. There was a crazy storm went through Austin. The power went out. It was epic. It was really, really epic night for me. One of the things that I can feel in my bones is I have the tools and I have the knowledge to essentially fundamentally change my biology in a way that would improve my life fundamentally Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that I'm not doing it because it's not bad enough. And there's this part of me that's afraid, like, I hope I can get my shit together to the degree where I don't need a lesson as powerful and as strong as this to use the power that I already know that I have. And I can feel that almost everyone listening to this podcast, they too understand that what they think, what they imagine, what they feel on a daily basis, then on a weekly basis, and then on a monthly basis affects what their biology does and that whatever is going on in their life, they're not even 50% of what they could be. And that if they took control of how they use their thoughts and their emotions and their imagination, that they could fundamentally be a different human in six months. But most of us simply will not use it because we're not uncomfortable enough. And like the beauty and the fear that's put in me by your story is like, fuck, I know I have the capability of doing that. And I know I'm not doing it. You 100% do. And anyone listening to us, you have the power to heal and to change and to do and to be and exist in any way 
that you want. Anything that you want is capable. You have the mind and the mind is so powerful. You know, you, we've got yeah. to work congruently with the body to heal, heal the body, you know, and, and you can do it. You're, you're doing great, great work, Eric. You're doing great work. You're doing a great job. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll just finish this story up really quick so we can move on. Please. But um, I worked with the Medary Foundation, which is a holistic foundation out of Oregon that works with um, cancer. And uh, they started sending me tonics and tinctures and pills and shakes and teas and all these things. And I did all of everything and the Deepak Chopra, all the praying, all the visualization, the psilocybin. And when it came time for the imagery, for me to go into my double mastectomy, I was in the tech office and she was like, you know, she's got the little uh, uh, ultrasound thing up to my breast. And she's like, where, where is it? And I'm like, well, that's the marker, right? Cause you know, they put a little like metal marker in you so that they always know where your tumor is. And so that it shows up and she's, um, it's, we're like, it's right there. She's like, I know, but I don't know. I need to go see the doctor. And I'm like, okay. So then you're just left in this room, right? This like, oh my God. And so a few minutes later she comes back and she's crying. She's like, the doctor said that there's no tumor here. I've never seen this. No fucking way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So my double mastectomy turned into just like a, um, um, just a, a kind of a lumpectomy, but what that actually was in essence was just them taking out some breast tissue and a few lymph nodes to make sure that there was no cancer and there was none. Whoa. How about that? Stage three, HER2 positive, healed. Have you met anyone else who has had that intense a type of cancer and had it heal like that? Like, have you found other people? No, mm-mm. No, I haven't. Not within my, not even within my breast cancer community here in Austin. Whoa. Okay. What I want to ask about is that motherfucking night that you took psilocybin and you called in the tumor. Mm-hmm. Like what even gave you the idea to do that? Cause that's fucking genius to me. And I'm curious how that even came into your awareness to do. And then I'd love to hear how you actually went about creating that container and doing it. Way back in the day, I read the Carlos Castaneda books, Don Juan. Uh, You're one of those. Yes. (laughs) It always resonated with me that there are substances that are your allies. Yeah. And that there are plants out there and medicines that are in nature that really work with you. And I knew that even when I was just using psilocybin recreationally, it allowed me as a younger person to understand if the connections in my life, the relationships were true or not, you know, cause you can see as much as you can see the beauty, you can see the darkness. Oh yeah. You know? And so I, I was in California with my parents when I got the diagnosis. And so, I mean, I got off the plane. My friend picked me up. As soon as she went out of the house, I brewed that tea. I just knew. Oh, you did it knew. right away? Right away. It was the first thing I did. Okay. So this again goes to that feeling that I had. Okay. I think all of us. Okay. So one of the things that I feel into as a coach is one of the things that I hear from the people that I'm helping is they feel like they have too many tools. 
and they don't know how to like create the perfect morning routine where they do all 12 of their fucking tools for four hours and it's already noon and they haven't even started their day because they've been doing all their <laughs> spiritual work. But like what, what I have found is that when I am put, I've had the luck and the grace to be put into about three or four life-threatening situations and then to be able to witness the thing that arises in me that is greater than my ego, that instantly knows exactly what the fuck to do with a sense of competence and calm that I don't know where I ever learned that from. And mm -hmm. that I have this feeling in me that if I got a cancer diagnosis tomorrow, I would fucking flip my whole goddamn life around. I would cut out all the bullshit I would cut out everything that I know is not serving me. I would hone every practice that I know would bring me into alignment. And that I have those tools here and now. But it feels like most of us, like the curse of the moderate comfort that civilization gives us, feels like it just keeps most of these tools just, just underneath the water. But when something powerful threatens you, it's like there's this master craftsman that knows exactly what tools to pick and just starts doing it. And the fact that you did it right when you got off the plane feels like it's evidence for that force inside of us. Yep. Yep. I, I, yeah, I totally agree. It is. It totally is. And you know what to do. You know, and when you have that toolkit, and it's a shame that it took that cancer diagnosis to wake me up. And that, that often takes that as a catalyst for most of us to wake up and we do have great tools. But, you know, if you are not living your life of purpose or something that is meaningful to you and you're not listening to the universe's whispers, yep. it's eventually going to fucking smack you in the face and knock you out. And that's what it did. You know, Absolutely. it wasn't enough that I got abducted in Turkey and I thought, okay, I have a beautiful life. It almost got taken from me. Let me, let me live a life of purpose. Nope. That wasn't enough. I had to live dysregulated from that for five years before I got, you know, my diagnosis. So. And what's really interesting is people that report having a strong sense of purpose are dramatically more resilient to traumatic experiences becoming traumatic. So their resistance to incurring trauma, like, so like one of the things that's not talked about that's super interesting is something called post-traumatic growth. I'm sure you've heard of this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that it's something like, uh, a, more people actually experience post-traumatic growth than post-traumatic stress disorder. And it seems to be that there is this fundamental force inside of us that when we go through a traumatic experience, it recalibrates our lives. It recalibrates what matters. And for cancer survivors, it feels like one of the gifts of that powerful, powerful teacher coming in is this dramatic realignment to purpose. And that kind of feeds into the question that I was curious to ask is, now as a cancer survivor, what are you most excited about in your life? Like, what is the thing that when you do it, you feel like you're completely in your dharma. You're completely on purpose. When I am working with, I mostly work with breast cancer survivors now. I work with ladies. Um, they're not all survivors, but for the most part, when we start peeling back the layers and it just keeps going deeper and deeper and you know, you get past some of the fear work and the the unwanted beliefs. And then you hit those 
those ACE scores, <laughs> those ACE uh, questions. And then that's where you see that's where the disease is coming from. That's when I want to be a facilitator of plant medicine. So mm. the next part of my journey, because I love applied neurology, I believe in that wholeheartedly and upregulating the nervous system. But the next part of the my journey will be getting certified and being a psilocybin facilitator. Um, I'm sitting with Cambo this weekend and Mm -hmm. uh, I have a really strong pull to that and maybe I'll facilitate with that. And, and, uh, but I feel like now as deep as I can take people now I've got them here in a place. And if you really want to heal and you don't have any psychosis, we don't have to worry about any mental issues the next step in healing for me will always be the recommendation of a plant. God, I love that so much. And I resonate with that so much. So upregulate your nervous system and find your way to a plant ally. (laughs) My recommendations. I love it. So one of my, my favorite way to tie a bow on people's stories when they come on the podcast is if you imagine that you are at that you have lived your life fully and that you're at the end of your life, you've accomplished everything that you've wanted to accomplish. And you know that when you go to sleep at the end of this last day, that you will pass. How would you want to spend that last day and who would you want to spend it with? I think I would just want to spend it with the people that I love and that love me, my family, my friends, any children that I will have adopted by then or my animals and just be outside holding space for each other and being in love. And if you could leave a single message on a piece of paper for your children before you go to bed, you're by some firelight or some candlelight and you have a pen and a paper, what message would you write? Believe in yourself and your body's ability to heal and to change. And the last question is, let's say that, or so you pass that night and then the New York Times or whatever writes an obituary about you. What would you like for it to say? <laughs> huh. Go big. Let's go. Oh my goodness. Wow. I was a dreamer, a mover, a shaker, a believer. I dreamed big. I loved hard. And I made changes in healing. You know, I really helped people heal and helped facilitate growth for them. And yeah, I spent my time with people. And for people who resonated with your story, are there any books or documentaries or movies um, that you would recommend to them if they wanted to go deeper into anything that felt like resonated with them in your story? Yes. uh, I did mention Deepak Chopra's Soul of Healing. That comes in a book, a DVD, an audio book, a series of meditations. And he really talks a lot about um, the body regeneration and what it's capable of and really on a soul level. Um, so I really recommend that book. I also love Joe Dispenza and, um, he is so incredible breaking the habit of being yourself. Have you read that? I have. Oh man, that is good. Good, good. And, um, the cosmic serpent Mm. is 
Yeah. Awesome too. Have you read that one? I have not read it, but it's it, it keeps coming up. Yeah, you're gonna like that one. Mm. And if people want to connect with you, uh, what are the best places for them to go to uh, either work with you or to just follow your journey and your story? So my podcast, my email address, my Facebook, my webpage, everything is all the same. It is illuminated with Jennifer Wallace. Beautiful. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. And thank you so much for the work that you do in the world. Eric, thank you so much. It was just an absolute pleasure and honor. I really enjoyed sitting here with you today. Thank you so much.